I'd like you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. That's our text for today. I'll be reading that in just a moment. 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Ruthie and I took a whirlwind trip down to North Carolina at the Billy Graham Center at the Cove, where we attended the pastoral renewal retreat for pastors and their wives. And uh, the keynote speaker uh, is the president of Southern Seminary, my alma mater, Dr. Albert Moeller. And the theme of the retreat was, and I quote, Lord, to whom shall we go? The predicament of preaching in a post-Christian age. And I want you to think about that question. When was that question, Lord, to whom shall we go, first asked? was asked by Peter after the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember that? Jesus had fed 5,000 men plus women and children, so there might have been as many as 20,000 people. And as great as that miracle was, it pointed to a far greater reality, and Jesus preached to them that he is the bread of life. He is the food sent from heaven for their famished soul. And we read there in the text that this message was hard for them to receive. And that many who had been following Jesus up to that point turned away from him. And they no more walked with him. And that was a low point emotionally in Jesus' earthly ministry. And he turned to his 12 disciples and said, do you want to go too? Do you want to go too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's what we say. Al Mohler said several times their retreat, as we were talking through situations in life, he kept saying, Christian, where are you going to go? <laughs> where are you going to go? You have nowhere else to go. It's Christ. And that's why when we open up God's word, we want to see Jesus Christ because he is our all in all. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we truly believe that, if we believe that Jesus has the words of eternal life, that the word that God gives us is food for our famished souls, then we will eat whatever God puts before us. Even if what we're eating is not initially appealing to our palate. I prefer hamburgers over vegetables. But I know hamburgers are good for me. I noticed when they gave the announcement at the beginning of the service that the ladies are not having a vegetable swap. They are having a cookie exchange because cookies taste better than, in my opinion, broccoli, uh, Brussels sprouts, ugh, and a lot of other stuff. And I want to say that in the same manner, some truths in Scripture may not appeal to us initially. But if we trust the God who feeds us, 
we can ingest any truth he gives us. And we can not only ingest it, but we can actually cultivate an appetite for what was perhaps at one time, maybe initially distasteful to us. Because we know it's good for us. We trust our divine dietitian and chef to give us what is good. And over time, as we believe and obey God's word, we begin to experience the positive effects of it in our lives and relationships. And that's the case with the scripture that we'll be considering today. 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. It's on page 932 in your pew Bible. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. And this is Paul writing under the inspiring influence of the Holy Spirit. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness will self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Before we moved to Webster over a dozen years ago, uh, we lived for about a dozen years in the greater Boston area. And that was the era when the big dig was going on. Have some of you heard, I know John has, other, have some of you heard of the big dig? The largest underground highway construction project in American history. And it was pretty much a disaster from start to finish. Even though in the final phase, it ended up being a success. But it had many, many problems along the way. It was initially projected to be to take seven years, and it took 17 years. It was initially supposed to cost $2.6 billion, and it ended up costing $14.6 billion, almost five times the amount. And the worst part is that a lady was killed. She lost her life when a concrete ceiling panel and debris weighing 26 tons fell from the top of the tunnel on her car. What caused the collapse? Well, come to find out that the bolts that were anchored into the cement slab at the top of the tunnel were too short. And the epoxy that was used to uh, seal the bolts into the concrete was not up to standard. The epoxy cost a little under $1,300. But the cost to redesign, inspect, and repair the tunnel because of that epoxy was $54 million. I thought about the big dig 
as I began digging into this text. It occurred to me that something that may seem so relatively minor, such as how men and women behave in the church, can actually carry massive consequences, far greater than any of us could anticipate. We live in a society that increasingly seeks to eradicate the line between masculinity and femininity. In his book, Strange New World, Carl Truman writes, and I quote, the sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, would have been nonsense to my grandfather. Had it been uttered by a patient to a doctor, even in the mid-20th century, the doctor would have almost certainly have responded that the patient had a psychiatric problem and that his mind needed to be treated so as to bring his feelings in line with his physical body. Today, the doctor is more likely to respond that the problem is such that the patient's body needs to be brought into alignment with his feelings. End quote. And if the doctor suggests otherwise, then he'll be subject to a lawsuit. Sex reassignment surgery is now called gender affirmation surgery. The genitals of men and women and even little boys and girls are being mutilated under the guise of gender-affirming care. We live in a strange new world. A strange new world that is suffering horrifically. That is suffering the tremendous cost of moral collapse. Jesus has commissioned us as his church to win that world to Christ. Carl Truman goes on to say, the most powerful witness to the gospel is the church herself simply going about the business of worship. When you came to church today, I wonder if you considered how simply behaving properly as a man or woman in the corporate assembly of God's people is one of the greatest impacts you and churches all over the world can have on the surrounding culture. The most powerful witness to the gospel is the church herself simply going about the business of worship. And when it comes to public worship, the Holy Spirit does not hesitate to say that there are differences between men and women. These differences are reflected in God's instructions to men and women throughout Scripture, including Paul's epistle to Timothy. Here we find in 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15, gender-specific directives. What I consider to be the epoxy and the bolts that keep the structure of the church together and our witness to the world intact. To state the matter simply, how men and women behave in church impacts global evangelism. That's the context of 1 Timothy 2. How men and women behave in church impacts global evangelism. Here in 1 Timothy 2, Paul shows us the connection. I trust that your Bibles are open 
that you're looking at the text and will follow this line of thought with me. Paul shows the connection because he begins chapter 2 by emphasizing the priority of prayer for the purpose of evangelism. Brother Reed Ferguson preached a fantastic message on verses 1 to 7 last week. Paul begins by emphasizing the priority of prayer for the purpose of evangelism. In verse 4 of chapter 2, Paul states that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then, now down in verses 8 and 9, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, and likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, and so on and so forth. Do you see the connection? God desires that all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul says, I desire then that the men should pray and that the women should wear respectable apparel. This, the parallel between those verses is unmistakable. It's undeniable. The parallel language emphasizes the connection between our worship as a congregation and our witness to the world. When the unbeliever shows up in our worship service, he or she should be struck by the otherworldly holiness of what is going on. He comes into our sanctuary and is just amazed at how different we are from the world around us. Because the world is engulfed in the devil's lies. And God has called his church to put his truth on display. The truth about God and the truth about ourselves as men and women and boys and girls. The account of creation in Genesis, which Bob and Aaron read moments ago, reveals that God created men and women equal but different. Did you catch that? Both man and woman were created in the image of God. Both man and woman are image bearers of their divine creator, and that gives them equal dignity and worth. And yet, God created them differently. Because his intended purpose is for the man and woman to fulfill different roles, different responsibilities, different capacities as part of God's complementary design in creation. And this is reflected in God's structure for the home and for the church. Kevin DeYoung writes, and I quote, if we are to think rightly and feel rightly and embrace rightly what it means to be male and female, we need to appreciate what God that God doesn't give arbitrary rules for men and women to follow. Whatever rules there are for men and women in the church are never mere rules. They reflect the sort of differentiated and complementary image bearers God designed us to be from the very beginning. All good theology starts in Genesis, but it never stops there. End quote. And that's why Paul issues gender-specific instructions here in his letter to Timothy. The church is God's house, and every house has its rules. In the middle of the chapter, chapter 3, or the middle of the letter, chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, Paul tells Timothy explicitly his purpose in writing. Timothy, I'm, I'm writing these things to you in case I'm delayed so that one may know how they ought to behave in the household of God. 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. So while the world is engulfed in the devil's lies, the church is to put God's truth on display and to defend that truth, to live out that truth. And that's why these gender-specific instructions appear here. Every household has its rules, and the church is God's household. So let's look at God's guidelines for his church, his household. First of all, with respect to men and prayer, verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now when Paul says, I desire, he's, he's not expressing a personal wish or opinion or preference. He is speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul's desire is God's directive. The God who wants all men to be saved wants all men in every place to be praying. The God who desires all men to be saved wants all Christian men, all saved men in every place praying. Paul specifically tells men to pray. Not because he doesn't want women praying. We see in in other places that there were women praying and women are supposed to pray in the public assembly of the church. We don't know all the details in the background of what was going on at Ephesus, but we get a pretty good clue simply by reading this letter from Paul. The fact that Paul emphasized, I want the men to pray, and the word for men specifically refers to males. It's not just a generic term where that can refer to you know mankind, men and women, but it's the word specifically for males. Paul specifically tells men to pray because apparently there was a problem. Either the men were not stepping up to pray at all, or they were stepping up to pray, but they were doing so while being angry and arguing with one another. Because Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So either they weren't praying they weren't stepping up to lead the church in prayer, or they were praying in God's house while fighting with one another. That kind of praying renders prayer useless. You might remember from 1 Peter 3, even in re- uh, reference to the marriage relationship, right? Husbands are told to live with your wives in an understanding way. Do not be harsh with her, or else your prayers will be hindered. Prayers can even be detestable to God. Imagine coming to worship to pray to God and your prayers are not only useless, but they're actually detestable to God. But in the book of Proverbs, it says, if anyone turns away his ear from hearing God's word, even his prayers are an abomination to God. So when we come to church to worship, to pray, we better be sure that we're prepared to receive what God gives us in his word or else even our prayers are detestable to him. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he also warned them about hypocritical prayers. So does James in his epistle. James describes the tongue in chapter 3 of his letter as a restless evil full of deadly poison, saying this, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not so to be. 
Sinful attitudes and words poison worship. And so Paul's primary concern here is not with a man's posture in prayer, but their purity. They are to be lifting what kind of hands? Holy hands, right? Holy hands that are reflective of a holy life lived unto the Lord. Now that's not to say, I don't think some commentators say, well, it doesn't matter what your posture is. I don't think posture is altogether insignificant. Simply because Scripture tells us many, many times why, how different people were postured in prayer. Scripture describes several postures for prayer that express inward devotion. So I think it is appropriate at times to, to have our body be an expression of our inward devotion to God, even as the words coming out of our mouths are, or the thoughts in our head. Psalm 95, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Daniel got on his knees three times a day to pray and to give thanks to God. And, and so kneeling or bowing, that's what they would do before a sovereign, a king. It shows respect, it shows reverence, it shows humility before royalty. Other men fell flat on their face. They fell prostrate right on the ground when they felt overwhelmed. Whether they felt overwhelmed by extreme trials in their life like Job did, he fell on his face and worshipped God when he was overwhelmed. Or like Ezekiel when he was overwhelmed by the likeness of God's glory when he saw it. But standing was the typical posture for prayer, especially in the corporate context. And we know that this was the practice of the early church. The same was true when it came to lifting hands. In Psalm 63, David testified, I will bless you, Lord, as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. In Psalm 28, David prayed, To you, O Lord, I call. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands. The practice of lifting up hands was, was often associated with, especially when they spread their hands, was visibly expressing to God their need for Him, their dependence on Him, as they looked to the Lord to supply all their needs. Holy hands are to be an expression of a holy life. That is to say, we should not be lifting our hands to the Lord when we're angry and bitter against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said, when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive you. Jesus went so far as to say that if you enter the place of worship and you're about to present your offering, and suddenly you remember that you're at odds with another believer. Someone has awed against you or you have an issue with them. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to leave your gift right there. Go be reconciled to your brother. Make things right with him or her first. Then come back to the place of worship and offer your gift. Angry, argumentative men make lousy intercessors. And so do passive men who are just listless in worship. 
God wants His church filled with men who are proactive in prayer, who are expressive in prayer, who, whose prayers are marked by purity in their walk with God and by peace in their relationship with others. Although the bulk of the passage for today, here at the end of chapter 2, is directed to women, notice that Paul starts with the men. So men, the main thrust of this passage in our line of thinking should not be women sit down, it's men stand up. We should thank God for women who pray. But they are not to be the only ones praying. They should not even be taking the lead, the initiative, the driving force in the prayer life of the church. Is to be the men. If women are the only ones praying, the church is running at half throttle. James tells us that the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. As Brother Reed pointed out, it's not because prayer itself in a formulaic sense is the power, it's because of the one to whom we are praying. God has all power, and He answers the prayers of His people. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, the Bible says. So men, your prayers matter. They fuel the church's worship and witness. So pray fervently. Pray faithfully with holy hands that are lifted to God, free from anger and controversy. That's men in prayer. Then he addresses, throughout the remainder of the chapter, women in propriety. Propriety in the dictionary is defined as conformity to established standards of good or proper behavior. (laughs) And these aren't just This isn't just a good standard being set before us. This is God's standard being set before us. And this is Paul's concern with the women as it pertains to their dress, to their deeds, and to their demeanor in the corporate worship service of the church. First of all, their dress. Look at verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, likewise also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. I'm going to give you 15 seconds, and I'll be silent, and just let you read that with your own eyes again. Read it carefully with your own eyes, 1 Timothy 2, 9. Now compare Paul's standard, God's standard, with today's most popular fashion magazines. Could the contrast be any more striking? Phil Riken writes in his commentary on this verse, quote, If this verse seems to be out of touch with contemporary culture, that is all the more reason to listen to what it says. Which is more likely, that the Bible is out of date or that our culture is out of line. 
God's word critiques every culture. Often the scripture that most shocks and surprises us or even angers and offends us is the scripture we most need to hear. End quote. Paul says, likewise. That word that introduces verse 9 is significant because it provides us the context of this regulation. Paul is still addressing the matter of public worship. Remember, he goes, I want the men to pray. Likewise, the women to be adequately prepared. That's what's indicated by the word adorn. The word adorn translates the Greek word cosmeto, from which we get our word cosmetics. It literally means to arrange, to put in order, to make ready. So women are to dress properly as they prepare for worship, as they prepare to gather with the church. So the idea is is that ladies are sifting through their closets, their wardrobes, wondering what to wear on Sunday morning, maybe even picking out their outfit on Saturday night. Paul wants them to pick respectable apparel that reflects modesty and self-control. You say, this just... This is just so out of touch with our culture right now. Well, it might encourage you to know that it was out of touch with the Ephesian culture as well. Dr. Stephen Baugh, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, has done a very in-depth study of 1st century Ephesus. And it shows that women's style of dress in that day reflected the excessive luxury and licentiousness of the Roman courtesans. The call girls, the high-end escorts. Baugh says the equivalent today, based on his study, would be telling Christians not to imitate styles set by promiscuous pop singers or actresses. These courtesans and the way they were dressed, they were, their image were, was on many uh, Roman currencies, Roman coins. Today they're on fashion magazines or concerts or commercials, TV shows, movies. And Paul is saying here, be careful women not to imitate them. The church of God is no place for a sultry fashion show. One commentator says, a woman who loves to be noticed when she goes to church must remember with whom she is competing. God is the one who deserves all our attention and affections. Now, Scripture is not saying Women, here's God's standard. Make sure that you stay completely out of style. The Bible doesn't forbid a nice hairdo, wearing jewelry, or up-to-date clothes. The point is, and you would understand this the more you get the culture of that day, but here, here's the point. Don't use these things. Your hairdo, your makeup, the dress that you're wearing or whatever other outfit, your jewelry, to draw undue attention to yourself. 
either to be noticed by men or even to be noticed or to impress other women in the fellowship. We want to dress appropriately so that people's gaze is drawn toward God. That we are not in any way a distraction in the public worship of the church. Now here's the thing. The issue is not whether women should try to display beauty. The issue is how they should go about it. Look at verse 10. Paul says there that women who profess to worship God make themselves attractive, how? By their good works. By the good things that they do. So the way to become more attractive, Paul says, what the Holy Spirit says through Paul, is through godliness, not gaudiness. A woman is made beautiful in the eyes of God, not by what she wears, but by what she does. John Stott rightly says, quote, The church should be a veritable beauty parlor. <laughs> Isn't that great? The church should be a veritable beauty parlor because it encourages its women members to adorn themselves with good deeds. Women need to remember that if nature has made them plain, grace can make them beautiful. And if nature has made them beautiful, good deeds can add to their beauty. Moreover, men can facilitate this process by recognizing and applauding in women the beauty of godliness, of Christ-likeness. End quote. Well, this goes to their demeanor. In verses 11 to 15, Paul's going to give the regulation, then the reasons for the regulation, and then bring everything to a resolution in verse 15. First of all, the regulation. 1 Timothy 2, 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Brother Reed, you were talking about people with the throwing fruit, but take it out of the can first. Yeah, I thought about that when I read this verse. <laughs> Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. But I would say when we look at this verse initially, it's easy for our eye to be drawn immediately to the, to the negative rather than to the positive. But notice Paul's first four words. Let a woman learn. Let a woman learn. Do you know that was radically revolutionary in the culture of the first century in Ephesus? In the Roman world, women were considered to be academically inferior to men. All the educational systems were designed for the men, not for women. Jewish rabbis, of all people, were even more chauvinistic. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, it was better for the words of the Torah to be burned than to be entrusted to a woman. The status of women in Greek culture was pretty pathetic too. William Barclay writes, quote, The respectable Greek woman led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters into which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. She never at any time appeared on the street alone. She never went to any public assembly. End quote. But Paul says, no, that's not right. That's not appropriate. 
That's not honoring to the Lord. Let a woman learn. But she is to do so quietly with all submissiveness. Remember the context. He's talking about the corporate worship gathering of the church. That's the setting. Let her do so quietly with all submissiveness. The word quietly does not refer to total silence, but to a calm demeanor. Paul uses actually the same word in 2 Thessalonians 3.12 where he commands Christians to do their work quietly. Uh, A lot of them were being busybodies. They were being lazy when it came to work, but very active when it came to their mouth. And Paul said, you know, uh, you need to do your work quietly. You need to settle down and just stick to your work and earn a living. And that's the same word that's used here. It's not talking about you know, completely keeping your lips shut during the entire worship service is saying, have a calm demeanor when the church is gathered for worship. Don't be loud and boisterous. The Greek word for submissiveness literally means to line up under. So in the context of corporate worship, women are to be content to be in the role of a learner when God's word is taught. Paul's reiteration of the regulation in verse 12 helps to clarify and interpret the meaning of verse 11. Look at 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. There's that word again. So, So notice the connection. He says, a woman is not to teach, thus respecting the command for quietness, nor is she to exercise authority over the man, thus respecting the need for all submissiveness in verse 11. So Paul is not participating or Paul is not prohibiting all vocal participation of women in the worship service, not by a long shot. Women can sing, they can pray, they can read scripture, they can share testimonies. But when it comes to the authoritative teaching of God's word and a governing role in the corporate assembly of the church, the woman is to be content to yield that to the pastors and elders. And we'll see next time we come to 1 Timothy that that is to be by qualified men. Scripture teaches us that women who are gifted to teach and to lead should use those gifts to build up the church. But it needs to be in the right context and never in the role of a pastor or elder. Rather, they should lead and serve and teach in other capacities under the authority of the recognized pastors and elders of the church. What are the reasons for this regulation? Paul gives two of them in verses 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's the first reason. Second reason. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So first reason is Adam was formed first, then Eve. We just read about that moments ago in the account of creation in Genesis 1. God made Eve after Adam in order to be his suitable helper. It's not an inferior position. God made both man and woman in the image of God. Uh, They are equal in dignity and worth. It's not an inferior position. They just have different roles. And this is part of God's complementary design in creation. Notice it is based on the order of creation. It's not based on the culture of the day. 
It's not based on the curse, like it was part of the punishment after Adam and Eve fell into sin. It was based on the order of creation, which God himself said, it is very good. So God's regulation for men and women in worship transcends all cultures at all times. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Both equal and yet different. But the second reason is, Eve was deceived. Humanity's catastrophic fall into sin occurred when the roles of men and women were reversed. After the serpent deceived Eve and she took of the fruit of the forbidden tree and ate it, the text says, and I quote, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, end quote. Adam was supposed to be the loving, protective leader in the relationship. But he stood passively by while the serpent deceived his wife. And then he followed her lead in the sinning against God. John MacArthur explains the essence of this in a brief paragraph, which I'll just read to you. Quote, When Eve stepped out from under the protection and leadership of Adam, she became highly vulnerable and fell. And of course, when Adam violated his leadership role and followed Eve, the perversion of God's order was complete. The fall resulted then, not simply from disobedience to God's command, but from violating God's appointed roles for the sexes. As the head of their relationship, Adam bore ultimate responsibility. That is why the New Testament relates the fall to Adam's sin, not Eve's. Headship by man, then, was part of God's design from the beginning, and he bears the responsibility for its success or failure. The tragic experience of the garden encounter with the serpent confirmed the wisdom of God's design. End quote. Well, what's the resolution? What's the resolution? Verse 15. Yet, yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This verse is usually understood in a couple of ways, a couple of different views. Some see it, and I think this is interesting, as a reference to Mary. That through the virgin birth, the Messiah entered into the world to save both men and women. And you can see how someone would conclude this given the context because Paul has just described the fall in Genesis 3. And we can imagine that now he's thinking of Genesis 3.15 which prophesies that the seed of the woman would eventually crush the head of the serpent. Furthermore, in the original text, the definite article, the, appears before the word childbearing. So it literally reads, she will be saved through the childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The childbearing referring to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would save his people from their sins. That's one possibility, and I think it's a, a plausible interpretation. 
But verse 15 could also mean that women are saved in a different way. The Greek word for save here, sozo, can also mean to rescue, to set free, to deliver from in a non-salvific sense, like, like not, in, in a way that's not related to our eternal salvation. The word sozo appears a number of times in the New Testament without reference to eternal salvation, but it means to rescue, set free, or deliver in some other way. One view is that what women are rescued from, in this case, is the stigma of having been deceived and led the human race into sin. They're delivered from this mark of disgrace when they give birth to children and raise up godly sons and daughters. We've all heard of the saying, the hand that rocks the cradle, what? Rules the world. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Again, Kevin DeYoung writes, quote, Understandably, someone will not have children because of medical reasons or singleness, but insofar as it is possible, childbearing is one of the unique ways in which a woman can accept in obedience her God-given design. End quote. The Lord has blessed Ruthie and me with five children, And I've always wondered during her season of pregnancy, what would it be like to have a living child growing within you? What would it be like? As a man, I don't know what that's like. I will never know what that's like because God has designed me differently than my wife. And yet God has made our union such that by his grace we can bring children into this world. And we can never underestimate the influence of a mother upon her children. I think it was Abraham Lincoln that said, all that I am and ever hope to be, by God's grace, I owe to the prayers of my dear godly mother. As Christian women... Continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. They prove the genuineness of their faith and have a remarkable influence on those around them, none greater than their own children. In her book, Women's Ministry in the Local Church, Susan Hunt, who co-authored that with Ligon Duncan, introduces her comments on this very section in 1 Timothy 2 by saying this. This is a woman writing this. I am awestruck that Paul's polemic on submission is preceded by a tender assurance of God's sovereign love. He says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. The God-man who paid the ransom for my soul is the one who tells me how life is to be ordered in his kingdom. Gratitude for such grace compels me to trust and obey. End quote. So with that in mind, let me give some concluding counsel. And if it helps you remember, I did it as A, B, C. They're also enumerated. A, align yourself with Scripture, not culture. Brett McCracken reminds us that the local church was meant to be counterculture, 
a set-apart community embodying a radically different vision for human flourishing. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the late British preacher, said, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Let me read that again. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. And this takes us back to our transformative truth based on today's text. How men and women behave in church impacts global evangelism. Because it's just not our church, it's everywhere the church of Jesus Christ gathers all over planet earth. When these principles are followed, it impacts the culture around them. So align yourself with scripture, not culture. Number two, beware of compromise and excessive cushion. Let me explain. Again, Kevin DeYoung writes, the principle of 1 Timothy 2.12 is clear enough, but the application takes a lot of wisdom and wrestling, and even complementarians may apply the principle differently. It would be nice if there were no areas of biblical obedience, but there are, end quote. There seems to be a very clear, when, when the church is gathered in an assembly like this, the whole church together. But then, like, well, what about Sunday school? What about small groups? What about youth group? Is it okay for a woman to teach high school teens? Well, are they young men? Or are they because they're still in their parents' home and because the whole church isn't together, it's just a part of the church? How does all this work? Applying these principles in specific contexts, even within the church, takes a lot of helpful conversation, wisdom in discerning our own context and doing what seems to be most pleasing to God. But as we seek to apply the principles listed here on the practical level in the life of the church, let's be sure we don't compromise God's Word. And we can be tempted to do that, especially if we see the guidelines here as a mere boundary instead of a blessing. Right? You tell your kids, you know, even your toddler, you know, don't go in that room, what'll he do? He's watching you the whole time. Don't go in. And then he might try to cross it, or maybe he not, but what's he doing? He wants to get as close as he can. Teens do the same thing, and frankly, young adults, even older adults, uh, when they're dating someone, Okay? We know that we're supposed to be sexually pure, but what's sexually pure? How far can we go before we've crossed the line? That's really coming at it the wrong way, isn't it? And we would be guilty of coming at it the wrong way if that was our attitude. Okay, what do I have to do to get as close to this ridiculous boundary that was set in Scripture while still technically obeying God? That doesn't reveal a heart that's fully submissive to the Lord, does it? There should be an eagerness with all submissiveness that we find joy in God's design. However, I would also say this. In fact, let me read this first. Jonathan Lehman says, I think this is a good question. Do you love and trust God's plan for the teaching of the church as outlined in 1 Timothy 2.12? Or are you tempted to apologize for it and get as close to the line as you can? 
We can see why that might be a temptation for women, especially if you have the ability to lead and teach. But I'll tell you, it's also very tempting for me as a pastor because I don't like women mad at me. I mean, honest, right? And so, like, you're my sisters in Christ. I love you. And I, I don't want there, this to be a divisive thing in our church. So it can be tempting to, what do we do about this? Tempted to compromise. But I would also say this, and I'm speaking to myself here just like I am you. At the same time, we don't want to cushion Scripture by adding our own regulations on top of what God has already put in place. And I think that's a real danger in theologically conservative churches. I'm glad that we are a theologically conservative church. Don't get me wrong. But if we're not careful, we can start adding to what God said, maybe even initially to protect that boundary. But Jesus condemned the religious leaders of his day, saying, in vain do they worship me, replacing the commandments of God with the traditions of men. If we don't think that there aren't sacred cows in the church, even in our church, then we're only fooling ourselves. We always need to examine our church traditions in light of God's truth and ask, why do we do things the way we do? Is it because we're just used to doing that way? Or is this how God in his word actually instructs us? Those, that's a good question to ask. In our practice as a church, we want to be as narrow as God's word is, as strict as it is, principles, but we also want to be as broad and as liberating as it is. Rightly dividing the word of truth, cutting it straight, as Paul says. So let's do our best to be as narrow as God's word is and as broad as it is as we seek to apply these truths in our own context of ministry. So align yourself with scripture, not culture. Beware of compromise and excessive cushion. And number three, celebrate the complementary contributions of both sexes to the body of Christ. This past week, I came across this quote by Nancy Piercy, who provides a beautiful musical analogy of this principle. She says, quote, Men and women exercising their gifts are like a violin and a cello playing a duet, blending in harmony while retaining their unique individual tones. End quote. I like the sound of that, don't you? Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would harmonize our gifts, our callings, our contributions to the church for the sake of our corporate worship and our corporate witness so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified among us. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard text, but I sure am thankful for your Holy Spirit, who is our guide, our teacher, the one who comes alongside and helps us progress in a manner that is pleasing to you. I pray, Lord, that as we think upon these truths, and perhaps some of us might engage in further study, uh, I think it would be great for us to engage in further conversation and dialogue to explore these things in a manner that is mutually beneficial to both men and women. 
We do pray that you would be honored in every way, that you would cause your face to shine upon us and give us your peace. For we pray all of these things in the name of Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, who is the head of his body, the church. Amen.